Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Today in the world of broad-mindedness, we need to explore definitely the experiences of, of, of individuals who have had richly scientific backgrounds and simultaneously richly spiritual experiences. And with us today is Dr. Bernie Siegel to explore just what his experiences have been as he has interlaced his spiritual tools in with his medical tools. Welcome, Dr. Bernie Siegel. How are you? Oh, I always tell people not to ask me that. (laughs) 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 You know, because most people don't really want to know. And, uh, you know, the child in me is always there. So let me just share this, that, you know, if I walk into stores or different places, oh, how are you? And I always say I'm depressed and out of my antidepressant and my doctor's away, (laughs) so I can't refill my... You know, and now there are certain places I walk in and the employees will say, I was told not to ask you, how are you? And I laugh because, you know, it's become a joke, uh, you know, wherever it is, from a restaurant to the supermarket. Um, So we're told not to ask you, how are you? But, you know, I used to think it was a joke. Let me say this. We can talk about the spiritual... I would say it thinking people would laugh. And my wife said to me one day in Stop and Shop after the uh, checkout clerk had said, how are you today? And I went through that routine. She said, you know, you think it's funny. They don't. I said, what do you mean? She said, you're not paying attention to the people around you. See, you think it's funny. And you're not watching their reaction. And the next time I said it, I did. And I... It really shocked me because women in the line behind me were offering me their antidepressants, opening their pocketbook (laughs) and showing it to me. One day, the checkout clerk said, I'll get relieved. Come to my locker. I have six kinds of antidepressants. Oh, dear. (laughs) And, you know, that's when you realize the world is wounded. And we need to help each other. I mean, one woman with a visible wound, she had a bandage over her eye and poked me in the back. And um, again, all this is in Stop and Chop, where I always say I have group therapy. But um, And she poked me in the back, said, you are the only person in Stop and Chop who has not asked me what happened. And that impressed me. You know, that here she has a visible wound. Everybody's talking to her, see? Because they know they could share their troubles with her because she's got troubles. And again, my childlike sense of humor, I said, oh, I knew what happened. Really? Yes, I have an abusive spouse also. And then she didn't know what to do with me with that crazy statement. But that (laughs) impressed me. And I really tell people, you know, if you want to see a different reaction from the people you work with or for, or even your family, come home with a bandage over your Mm -hmm. eye or arm or something, you know, and they'll say, oh, what happened? And and then they start telling you things they never told you before about their troubles. Mm-hmm. Let me get to the spiritual and, and how that also affected me and connected me with people. Many years ago in the 1970s, I had an incredible urge to shave my head. And in those days, the boys were wearing the hair down to their shoulders. So our kids would... Uh, you know, one more way the father was now going to embarrass them by his crazy behavior. But I couldn't help it. And much as the barber didn't want to shave my head because it, the kids had gone to him and said, don't do it if he comes in. He, I, I told him, I'll go away for the weekend. Nobody will know, you know. And so he shaved my head. Hmm. When I came to the hospital to make rounds and see my patients, I couldn't believe how many people lined up to talk to me. I thought, what's going on here? I mean, literally, in the hall, you know, on one of the floors of the hospital. Um, And I thought, what's going on? Then I realized, they know you got a problem. 
you know, it's not normal to shave your head. So they're looking to talk to you about their problems and share. I use the words native and tourist, that you become a native with your wound. Other natives talk to you and understand, while the tourists don't know what you're going through. Okay? Mm. And then, it may have been a year or two later, I really understood what needed to be uncovered. Because when I did a self-portrait of myself, when our pets and children were tired of posing and ran out of the house <laughs> one day when I came home from work, so I thought, they don't want to pose, so I'll put up a mirror. I painted myself as if I were in the operating room, cap, mask, and gown. You don't know it's me. And that's, you know, when I began to realize. You see, at the time I did it, the symbolism didn't mean much to me. Even when I drew a picture for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and made snow on a mountain, she said, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? She said, Bernie... There's snow on the mountain. I said, yeah, it's snow on the mountain. She said, the page is white. You don't need a white crayon. So what? Are, you added a layer. What are you covering up? I mean, everywhere I turned, it was, what are you covering up? And what I realized was it wasn't skin, you know, yeah. that needed to be uncovered. Because what Jung wrote about was a myth in which the hero's head is shaved. And... He goes on to say, it's what monks do to uncover their spirituality. Mm. He said it's called a tonsure, T-O-N-S-U-R-E. I've never really looked up the word. But when when I read that sentence, to uncover their spirituality, I felt like yelling out, thank you, Carl, thank you, now I understand Mm. myself. Because of all the pain of being a physician. See? I, I really needed to let God in, if you want to use that term. Because believe me, and I've come up with answers to all these, why would God make a world? I took care, I did a lot of children's surgery. So, especially with the children, why would God make a world where all these kids have to suffer with diseases and cancers and all kinds mm-hmm. of problems, say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Those are things I began to pursue, you see. And I may say in my reading, one story that really impressed me was a story about the Baal Shem Tov watching Jews in Russia back in the 1800s being slaughtered by the Cossacks. And I know how true that is for my grandfather who escaped from Russia and a patient I had in New York at Bellevue who had his head, really, a V cleft in his skull that was two or three inches deep. I mean, it was healed. But I said to him one day, what happened to your head? And he said, I was a child in Russia, and the Cossacks split my head open. I don't know how he survived. I mean, it's unbelievable. But then I understood it. But what the Baal Shem Tov said while he watched was, I wish I were God. And... I say that to a lot of people at workshops. If you could be God for a day, why would you want to be God? <clears throat> and the right answer isn't, I'll fix everything. The right answer from the Baal Shem Tov was, you know, because his students who heard him say that said, oh, you'll stop this. He said, no, but I would understand why. Hmm. And then began that search, see. And in a wonderful story called The Next Voice You Hear, You'd love it if you read it, by George Alvey, written back in the 40s, just radios, no television. And what happens is, one day, on every radio, in every language, at the same moment, they all hear a voice. Hello, this is God. (laughs) And everybody says, oh, who's kidding around? And then they realize, it can't be a trick. It's the whole world, in every language, at the same moment. It must be God. So people start to listen. And the basic message was, a perfect world is not creation. It's a magic trick. And I remember that sentence, that you're here to live and learn. Oh, and the humor, too, was, and don't commit suicide. We have housing problems, too. And, you know, and that, that we don't need more religions. And so there's a lot of humor in 
the story, but there's also those two answers. See, I'd understand why, and the why is a perfect world is not creation. Mm. I mean, just think about the evening news. If the world were perfect, nobody would be talking to anybody anymore. Mm. You know, we wouldn't need anything, and you'd be going nuts um, Mm. because there'd be really no reason for any of us to be here because everything's perfect. So I always feel that we're here to strive towards perfection Um, because then if it's done in a meaningful way by us, you know, it's something that is not about perfection. It's about creation and the process of creation. And we, you know, creation has been around for millions of years I couldn't believe listening, whether it was millions or billions, I don't remember, but uh, it's an incredible ongoing process. And one of the things I have to say is when they talked about oxygen, you know, it never occurred to me, somebody had to create oxygen so we Mm -hmm. could breathe and be alive. I mean, it's an amazing process. And it is miraculous. The, The quantum physicists and the astronomers, yeah, are more into miracles because... You can't explain how all this came to be. But still, what I look at are the resources that it's coming from. See, my definition of God is loving, intelligent, conscious energy. And that if we bring those things together, we can do wonderful things. And uh, to quiet one's mind um, and to let those things happen. So... You know, every day I do my meditations. Most of the time it's easier when I'm walking the dog and I'm out by myself and, you know, can can connect uh, with God and, uh, and, and just try to create what I would like. See, the word mm. I use is potential. Mm. Um, that people need to realize we have the potential to self-induce all kinds of processes. I loved uh, Ernest Holmes. Uh, A sentence somewhere in one of his books was, what if Jesus was the only normal person who ever lived? Hmm. Now, I love that. You know, Hmm. and it's, again, what if we all had that faith? I mean, I know people with cancer who are alive and well today because they left their troubles to God when they were expecting to die. They just went home, left their troubles to God. And it isn't just God. I mean, I know a lot of people who, when they expected to die, really started to enjoy living, moving uh, to to places they loved. I mean, all kinds of stories. And when you don't know why you weren't invited to the funeral, (laughs) I'm laughing because you call up and they answer the phone, you know. And one man's words were, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. Um, And again, it's what was right for him. He may want to go and be in the mountains. You may want to go and be at the seashore. So I always say, follow your heart. Let it make up your mind. Um, And when you do that, amazing things happen. The the term I use, self-induced. See, doctors talk about miracles and spontaneous remissions Mm. because they never learn from their patients. It was something, you know, when I started to do support groups for cancer patients to help them survive, I realized when they didn't die when they were supposed to, and literally some of them I thought were dead and they'd show up for one of my lectures somewhere, and I'd say, what, 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 where have you been? Why did you, you know, it's like, why should I come to the office if everybody expects me to be dead? Um, but they always had a story, because I never told anybody you know, their chances of when they were going to die. I mean, I gave hope. And I was criticized by other doctors. You're giving false hope. What the hell is false hope? You can't have false hope, you know? I always say the odds of winning the lottery is not great. But, hey, even one chance in a couple of million, it happens. People win. So it's no different with disease. Um, And it's when people made the changes that healed their lives, that their bodies got a live message. I mean, Monday morning, we had more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. And it's how you feel on Monday. And I may add, just so people understand, the potential for change is there. See, 
you can act and behave as if you're the person you want to be. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean it literally, that when you give actors comedies or tragedies and draw their blood while they're acting, what they're performing changes their blood chemistry. In other words, a comedy enhances immune function, lowers stress hormone levels, put them in a tragedy, and the opposite happens. And why this impressed me as a physician uh, when a college student did it as part of his thesis was that it, it was only acting. You know, I thought, that's not even their life, and look what it's doing to them. So imagine if it was something that happened in their life, how they would then react even more powerfully uh, to it. And so I'd say to people, remember, act and behave as if you're the person you want to be. You know, find a role model. Uh, again, my sense of humor is WWLD. What would Lassie do? So learn from the animals. You know, they live in the moment or from the children. They're not worrying about next month. They would like to have a nice day today. And that's what we all need to do. And it ain't easy. You know, I'm I'm <laughs> in the same world you are, and I'm amazed how something goes wrong every day uh, in our house. It's like, what's it going to be today, you know, uh, from roof leaks to appliances to pet problems to you name it. Um, but when you get up and say, let me enjoy the day, um, what difference can I make in the day? You know, because things come and things go. And uh, the key is what you're visualizing in the future. Not uh, wonder what will be wrong tomorrow, but what will be right tomorrow. So I say many mantras in the morning uh, to help refocus myself, you know, with positive views. And thanks for being here and alive and being able, as one man said, who really was in three accidents where he could have been killed. And he said for him, just waking up in the morning, you know, he's a winner. And I think when you feel that way, you have a very different life than, oh, what do I have to do today? Um, So keep working on it. And I mean that, keep working on it. I'm not perfect, but I try to live the sermon. So I apologize when I don't, and I can say, hey, tomorrow I'll get up and I'll give it a try and keep working at it. So many doctors that I've spoken to or heard or read say that when they finally made the leap to embrace the spiritual aspect of life, they felt ashamed, embarrassed. They felt like they were going to be ostracized because it was such an anti-cultural thing to do within the scientific community. And taking that mask off of being a scientist versus spiritual, uh, spiritually oriented. Uh, it sounds like you did that similar sort of thing. When, when and how do we come to a point where we embrace both simultaneously? Well, some of it had to do with my realizing the role religion played in people's lives. And that I needed to inform myself about their religions too. They, and because to me, there's a difference between religion in the sense of rigidity and doing things on certain days and the meaning behind it. Well, oh, people have gotten mad at me for saying what Joseph Campbell said. Religion is a misinterpretation of mythology. Huh. See? So I look for the message in the religion and in the ritual and whatever is happening so I can learn from it. See, here's a quote I keep on my desk from Jesus. It is done unto you as you believe. Now, I was criticized for saying that to patients. See, talking to them about their attitude, what's going on in your life. And doctors said, you're blaming your patient. So Jesus is blaming everybody. Mm -hmm. It's done unto you as you believe. So if something happens, it's your fault. No, what he's telling you is what I talked about. Act and behave as if. Visualize what you desire, see? And have faith that if you believe that something could happen, not about statistics, then better things will happen because then you're in a very different place. But as doctors, we're not brought up 
really to deal with feelings. A wonderful sentence that I don't like but says the truth. Doctors are trained to treat the result, not the cause. We don't get into people's lives. Why are you sick? What made that gene become active when your twin sister is fine? Um, Those are things that we need to look at. And again, doctors have said to me, you're blaming your patient. Or when I recited a poem about cancer, about childless women get it, and men when they retire, it's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. Just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. These are things yelled at me from an audience, okay? But it is true because, again, the, I always say the poets, <clears throat> the songwriters, the playwrights, they're not, gonna, they're not writing fiction. They're writing what they've seen into their words. And these are things, as I began to study religion um, in Catholicism back in 1823, Think how you would feel if the smallpox vaccine vaccine became available. Wouldn't yeah. you be excited? Now mm-hmm. your children and you don't have to die of smallpox. You know what the Pope said? Pope Leo the Twelfth. Mm-hmm. These are his words. If you vaccinate yourself against smallpox, you are no longer a child of God and you will not go to heaven. Because yeah. God decides who gets smallpox. I couldn't believe that. It was in a mm-hmm. book on Catholicism and religion when I was going through, you know, many books with different religions and and health. Um, so that shocked me. Mm-hmm. But again, and I have to say, the current pope is far different than that gentleman mm-hmm. was a couple hundred years ago. But um, again, what I liked was a statement from Maimonides, the Jewish physician philosopher, Again, you know, back maybe a thousand years ago, he said disease is a loss of health. So if someone loses their health or you find what your neighbor lost, you return it to them. See, that's the Mm -hmm. biblical message. Mm -hmm. So see it as something you've lost and don't think God is punishing you. But I have Mm -hmm. to say, not too long ago, I couldn't believe it, in the newspaper, I have a copy of the article, so I don't make these things up, Somebody wrote to Billy Graham and said, does God want me to have cancer? I'm not the best you know, guy in the world, but what do you think? My f- reaction immediately would have been no. Bill- Billy Graham's was not necessarily. And I thought, what are you talking about? But he said that God can use cancer to bring you back to being a spiritual person. You know, it's like, hey, if you won the lottery and everything's wonderful in your life now, you don't have any problems, then God can give you a disease so you remember to come back to God. And I couldn't believe that. Because, again, I would have said, no, God doesn't want you to have cancer. Is it possible that cancer can be a wake-up call, a gift, a blessing, a new beginning? Sure. It can, you know, re-educate you about the meaning of life. But I I don't think God walks around saying, oh, I'll give that guy cancer, give him a knock on the head. Um, It's just crazy uh, to to put the guilt and all the other craziness in. And what people need to do is realize God loves you, or else think about it. You cut your finger, why don't you bleed to death? How come bacteria can resist antibiotics? These things are built into all living things, survival mechanisms. So God wants us to survive. And that's why I say the key is self-induced healing. See, But when doctors talk about spontaneous remissions, they're not learning anything from their patient. And I learned there was what I called survivor behavior. There are ways that you can coach people, and that's an important aspect. I always say look for life coaches, whether it's the Bible or your neighbor, um, somebody who can help you become a better performing human being. Not somebody who tells you you're a bum and no good, uh, like many parents do. You're a failure. You embarrass me. That that doesn't help anybody. But there's a nicer way to do that. They, then they're teaching you something. And I may add, um, I call it, then you become a love warrior. Say. 
And that's mm-hmm. the spiritual aspect too. That love becomes your weapon. Mm-hmm. And I mean it literally. When people are driving you nuts, say to them, I love you. Keep it up for several months and then skip a day. And you'll hear from them wondering if you're okay because they haven't heard from you today. They, you forgot something. And when one woman I know, after three months of saying I love you to her alcoholic parents, um, was late for work so she ran out of the house, guess who was in the street screaming, you forgot something? They, her parents. <laughs> And when she said, what did I forget? I got all my stuff. You didn't say I love you today. And they, see, that was the healing moment in the street, crying and hugging, and their lives were healed at that moment. So be a love warrior. You know, the, and I the mean it, it. There are times it's absolutely fun when, um, you know, when you're out and somebody's mad at you for, taking their parking space or stepping in the line ahead of them. Um, And if they start yelling, just say, I love you. (laughs) They don't know what to do with you then. (laughs) I mean, um, I had one lady, I I don't know what was wrong with her. I mean, I just parked my car and she came walking away from her car towards me, screaming and yelling and cursing me. And I said to her, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want you to know I love you. I mean, I I presume she's a drug addict that something had snapped in her brain. And when I said that, she stopped, turned around, got back in her car, and drove away. Wow. People watching came over to me to say thank you. One guy said I was going to knock her down because I didn't know what she planned to do to you. And you know, they couldn't believe that I made that statement and mm-hmm. off she went. And I have to say that, you know, when it's an argument in a parking lot and then you both go into the same store, it is funny because they don't huh. want to meet you again. <laughs> huh. Huh. Walking down the aisle in the store, huh. they quickly change uh, and go into another place. <laughs> You're just uh, illustrating so much how embracing the human capacity to to grow, to be at their best, to, to feel the depth of their heart is uh, at the basis of healing. And right. to what did the, yeah. Pope Leo, did the Pope Leo actually violate the, the human right to heal by what he said, you can't do this, you won't be in God's kingdom. And mm. did the medical profession have to step away from people who were advocating against human potential uh, because they were being limited by even their spiritual beliefs. Yeah, and to help them to heal, just what you're saying. See, a woman said to me many years ago, which is what got me to become a different person, she said, I need to know how to live between office visits. Mm. And I thought, wow, if I help her live, I'll feel better, even if I can't cure her disease. So Mm. I want to make that clear to people. You can heal your life even if you don't cure your disease. I mean, one of my teachers is Helen Keller. Why wasn't she mad at God, you know, for making her blind and deaf from that age of four years? But she wasn't, see? She looked at it more as discipline. Um, I forgot the exact word she used, but um, it, it was more like God is teaching me, instructing me, disciplining me, not punishing me. Um, and she's an incredible teacher. And that's what we have to realize. I know a lot of people, quadriplegics, blind. I mean, you know, people I can't cure, but they're healed people and a pleasure to be with because they're living their life. They're not angry at God and mad at everybody else. They're just grateful for the opportunity to be here. Wow, that's a deeply spiritual in and of itself, yeah. Yeah, I I can remember uh, Norman Vincent Peale was a friend, and at one of his meetings, um, I can't remember the man's name, but um, he picked up a hand grenade he thought had fallen from his belt, but it was a live grenade. So it blew off, you know, arms and legs and 
but he, he Max Cleland, that's who it was. He became a United States senator. But he was such a teacher, and I met him at one of the conferences. I mean, this was not a man who was bitter and resentful and, you know, sitting home in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He ends up in Congress. He became a teacher, an image for people with all his wounds and afflictions. I mean, my father-in-law, as a matter of fact, fell off the back porch when he got new glasses and missed a step and... He became quadriplegic eventually oh, okay. due to an injury. But again, he was such a beautiful guy. I mean, when I said to him, what advice do you have for seniors? He said, tell them to fall on something soft. I mean, that's the kind <laughs> of sense of humor he had, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and he was such a wonderful person to be with. And he lived to 97, you know, with all his problems. I mean, when he got tired... Because I wanted him to live to be 100. See, that's where families can be a problem. You have to get better. You have to this. You have to that. No, you don't tell your family members what treatment they need to have. um, You help them make their decisions. That's survivor behavior that they choose. Then they don't have all the side effects and problems. Um, And really, when he got tired of his body, because I wanted him to live to be 100 and get on television... Um, but you see, then I'm the problem. I want him to continue no matter how he's feeling or what's happening. And uh, he said to me, no. And when he was ready to die that night, he um, just told the family, I'm not having dinner, I'm not having my supplements and medications. And we all knew he's saying goodbye. And he died quietly that night. Because that's the other part I've seen as a gift. When you want to go back into your consciousness, rejoin God, um, all the wonderful things when you leave your body and become perfect again, um, that's your choice. It's not a hard thing to do when nobody's fighting with you, see? When doctors aren't fighting with you uh, and trying to keep you from being dead to show how wonderful they are. And when your family is making you feel guilty if you don't keep up the battle, don't make it a war. Mother Teresa said it very well. I will not attend an anti-war rally, but if you ever have a peace rally, call me. So mm-hmm. that's what I try to help people. See? Mm-hmm. As she said, I need to know how to live between office pe- visits. Mm-hmm. Help people live. Help them find peace. Help mm-hmm. them find what's right for them. Don't make it a war. Mm-hmm. Now, some kids, I have to say, you know, with all the imagery going on now, they don't mind fighting wars and battles and Okay, but most adults, despite all the news we're seeing, are not killers. You know, the, the the desire to kill comes from the absence of love. It comes from the abuse and the indifference and the rejection, and then the desire for revenge. No mass murderer was loved as a child, and I mean that. I don't care what, I mean, parents may have tried to do a good job, <clears throat> but for whatever reason, uh, those children did not feel love. They didn't grow up with a house full of pets, see, like our kids did, and learn a reverence for life, as Schweitzer talked about. I mean, I've picked up worms in the street after the rain to save their lives. Mm. I thought I'm neurotic and nuts mm-hmm. until I read that Schweitzer did that all the time. Mm. See? And he even yeah. would save insects by giving them a leaf to climb on if he saw a puddle. <clears throat> and that's how our kids grew up, saving lives, you know. One is in law enforcement. He's capable of killing, but I don't worry about him having a gun because he has spent time <clears throat> saving the lives of a turtle uh, who he found on the sidewalk. And I mean, he spent half an hour, he told me, to find a, you know, a pond to put a turtle in. Now, how many mass murderers would do that? And again, you know, there are people who say animal cruelty should be a felony because statistically people who injure animals also end up hurting people. So it's, again, how you brought up. If we brought up every single kid with love, the world would be a wonderful place to be. Mm-hmm. 
you know. And I always say, when I talk about love warrior, if they elected me president, you know what I would do? I'd stop hmm. making weapons and give the money to all our enemies. I'd say, look, I want you to feel better. I want you to have a better meal, more water, healthier. This. So here, here, take the money. I don't want to make more bombs and airplanes. And yeah. what They wouldn't know what to do with me. No different than the guy <laughs> in the parking lot. You know? Because how can they say, look how terrible Americans are? What do you mean they're terrible? They just gave us a billion dollars to make everything better. Yeah. So be a love warrior, whether you're the president of the United States, you know, or a school teacher or anything else. Because all the authority figures can reparent us and make us feel loved. And I mean that literally. As a doctor, I would always give return appointments to self-destructive patients. In other words, mm-hmm. patients who came in with a problem but never did anything you told them to do that was good for them. Mm-hmm. What are they used to? I'm not giving you any return appointments. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Mm-hmm. I would always say, I'll see you in two weeks. What would happen? After months went by, I noticed they were taking care of themselves because they realized I care about them. They must be worth something. Mm-hmm. And it, it really worked. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <clears throat> So school teachers, I've seen the same thing. Wonderful stories from people because a school teacher, in one case, a woman was criticized in first grade for drawing a picture. And I'll make it a short story. It won't go into all the details. But um, And she said in second grade she was asked to draw a picture, so she left a page blank. The teacher came over, put his hand on her shoulder and said, The snowfall, how clean and white and beautiful. That changed her life. I mean, she turned that into a little book called Purple. Um, Just those simple words from a teacher. So any authority figure, whether it's politician, teacher, doctor, can make you feel worthy. And I always say, if I were the president also, I wouldn't try to pass a million laws about reducing sugar and, you know, in in foods and telling people not to smoke cigarettes. And I would say, I want you to love yourself. I love you. God loves you. Love yourself. Let me be your father. Okay. Then people take care of themselves and pay attention to the instructions and the information. Whereas when there's no self-love, who... You know, no self-inspiration. What the hell's the point of telling them what's good for them? They're not going to listen to you. And I've learned that, and I mean it sincerely. I mean, people need to have self-esteem and self-love in order to use the information. And uh, we need to wake up to that fact. So, I'd say it's almost like you're giving a, a you're giving a, a formula for uh, creating our next Nirvana, mm-hmm. which. Do you believe that? Do you you think that your near death or after life experiences cultivated these mindsets or this awareness, the depth of love, the power of? I'm sure it did for people to to know. When I was four years old, there were a bunch of carpenters in our house, and in those days, they put nails in their mouth, you know, and then pulled them out and banged them in. And so I was sitting on my bed. Uh, <clears throat> home uh, with a cold and um, I had a toy telephone and the dial was screwed in so I unscrewed it and then put the pieces mm. in my mouth mm. imitating these carpenters oh, and I aspirated them and I was choking to death which I have to tell you I still feel it it's one of the most painful experiences I've ever had in my life when your body is sucking trying to get air in, and it can't. I mean, the chest and the diaphragm, oh, God. And then oh all gosh. of a sudden, I had no pain. I thought, what's happened? And I realized, <laughs> you're, I'm laughing. I know it sounds crazy, but it was a, a wild experience. You know, when you're four years old, I'm not in the body anymore. I suddenly, I'm up in the air, over the bed, looking down. And I realized I'm not that that body. That was an interesting feeling I had because whenever I would talk about it, even as a kid, 
I'd say he was dying. You know, it's like it wasn't me anymore. It was just mm-hmm. that body. And um, just so people know, obviously I didn't die. And see, this is when I began to feel I probably have an angel and there's also a God because I thought this is wonderful. Almost every child who has a near-death experience is upset because their parents will find them dead. But if you ask them, which did you want? Oh, I preferred being dead. See? Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt. I, lo- I thought it over. See, you don't stop seeing. People have to understand that. I mean, most people now who have the near-death experience accept it and write about it. Um, you can see. You can think. I mean, all these things are amazing. So I'm thinking, seeing, saying, no, I want to be dead. It's more interesting. I'm sorry my parents will find me this way, but that's what I prefer. Mm-hmm. And then the kid on the bed had a seizure and vomited. And when mm-hmm. I think about it now, it's like mm-hmm. somebody did a Heimlich maneuver on him. I'm sure mm-hmm. my angel did. Say. So everything came flying out now, including the toy parts that were caught in his uh, trachea and uh, larynx. And he started breathing again. Mm. And the nearest way I can explain it is it's like a vacuum cleaner. You're, I'm back inside again. Now, for me, back then, I thought this was a normal occurrence that everybody knew about. You know, a year or two ago, somebody wrote a book about their four-year-old called uh, Heaven is for Real. Because the kid told them all kinds of things that happened experiences he had when he was out of his body um and you know who he met and what he learned and all and the father couldn't deny it so he didn't think his kid was crazy anymore but for me i thought well this is a normal occurrence everybody knows when you die you leave your body i didn't even mention it to my mother i mean she came in shrieking and screaming realizing you know something might happen uh, because she'd been in the kitchen and uh, she was in no mood for a wonderful discussion. And I just thought, okay, everybody knows about it. But I also felt there's a schedule for each of us, and we're not in charge of the schedule hmm. that God is. But I have to say this. I think that if you want to be on the longest schedule, then choose life. Choose a life that is life-enhancing for you and everyone else. See, not a bitter, resentful, angry person who didn't get what he wanted, but how can I make it a better world? Mm -hmm. Then you have a gift as well as other people. Mm. Because, again, when you... I often say to people, do what makes you lose track of time. That's the healthiest Mm. state you can be in. You're in a trance. I know when I've been in pain and injuries and done things like painting, um, just even in the operating room, caring for someone, I had no pain at all for hours. But as soon as I was done creating or helping as a surgeon, a patient, um, oh, I was on the floor. The pain was back. And that impressed me as a doctor that the pain was gone when you were in this state of being a creative, healing person. So I always say, find things that make you lose track of time. And I really think the other gift is, if you don't know what time it is, how can you get older? Now, that may sound crazy to say, but think about it. If you think four hours is half an hour, because you're having such a wonderful time, how much older is your body? I think it's only half an hour older. Because you have, in a sense, suspended it, you know, in this wonderful state in which its chemistry is different. Mm. So when you love your life and your body, you derive a lot of benefits from it. Mm. And as I said, what I mean to choose life is to choose not to be selfish, what's good for you, but what's good for you and benefits everybody else as well. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, we have one of my, the books we put together, stories, they're not all mine. I mean, people mailed them in, and we put a book together called A Book of Miracles. Yes, it's and a that's great book. And that, that struck me, 
when you look through it and all these coincidences, which were labeled miracles, happened when people were choosing life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, not just thinking about themselves, but about honoring and respecting everyone. Mm-hmm. Then amazing things happen. The people you meet, uh, all kinds of things. You know, how do you feel about when people need to choose death? I remember my mother when she, mm-hmm. two weeks before she passed, she held my hand and she said, Girl, is there a life after death? I'm so scared. And I, the, I, so I won't go on into the dialogue I had with her, but I think that's such a truly important question. Yeah. And we're so allergic to spirituality and the religiosity and mythology, but well, can you I can address tell you, that fundamental concern? There yes. is a life after death. Consciousness does not end when your body does. Say, I mean, I can guarantee that to people. And I'm serious when I say that. From my own personal experiences with our family, none of our family members had trouble dying. I mean, my parents and my wife's parents. Um, my father died laughing. Why? Because, see, the consciousness said to me that morning, ask your mother how she and her and your father met. Because I said, I don't know how they met. Yeah, well, ask them when you get to the hospital. And my father lost a coin toss and had to take my mother out. And she told more stories, had him laughing. And mm-hmm. again, he was in a coma, but you hear in a coma. And... Mm-hmm. He didn't die till the last person who said they were coming to say goodbye walked into his hospital room. Then mm-hmm. he took his last breath. Mm-hmm. And again, he's in a coma. He doesn't know all these people, um, you know, are there. But, or does he? Yeah. <laughs> and let me say this. that she's, One of my patients was a mystic. And when she said, oh, I've learned you're not a normal doctor, I have a message for you mm-hmm. at our last session. If I had known from Frank, she said, and I knew who Frank was. He was a member of our group, a doctor who had just died. If I had known it was this easy, I'd have bought the package a long time ago and not Mm. have resisted so much. Mm. So I called his wife. I said, I don't want to upset you, but would you like a message from Frank? Sure. Mm. Nice. I said it to her. And I heard a shriek over the phone. I said, I told you, that's what I was worried. I don't want to upset you. She said, I'm not upset. That's not why I shrieked. I shrieked because every time we left your group, Frank would say, I can't buy the package. (laughs) And when I was having a tough time a few months ago, and it's not the first time, the phone rings. It's Monica. Your folks are worried about you, and they told me they wanted me to call you and tell you to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you'd say, how the hell did she know? But Monica mm-hmm. told me I would write a book before I ever wrote a book, uh, mm-hmm. and she doesn't know my parents at all. When my mother died after my father, the phone rings. Monica says, you folks are together again, and they're very proud of you, and they're being shown around by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Huh. Now, you know, I mean, Monica... It has to be true, if you know what I mean. See, the mm-hmm. other thing to prove consciousness that I've written about was meeting an animal intuitive friend named Amelia Kincaid. And she's written some books about her experience. When I met her, I thought she was nuts. Because when somebody tells you, I talk to animals, I mean, you know, I can't be too impressed. <laughs> <laughs> but, Hard to verify. Uh, see, I test everybody. I, see, I don't live by my beliefs. I always say this. I live by my experience. Hmm. So twice, cats have disappeared. We have a house full of pets. And I will get in touch with Amelia. Once when she was in California, and the other time she was in Africa teaching, and I said, the cat has disappeared. She described the house in one case, and that the cat was under the house. Well, it turned out the next morning, after the cat was missing for a couple of weeks, it was hiding under a stairway so it wouldn't be attacked because we live in the woods, you know, by any creatures. And I pulled it out that morning. The other cat disappeared. I thought it was in the basement, but I 
It would never come out. I kept turning the lights on, yelling, nothing. And Amelia described our entire basement. It was funny because she said, it must be in the garage. You know, what a mess. I said, no, that's our basement. <laughs> we have five <laughs> kids and all the junk that was left from that. And sure enough, see, when I stopped calling it, didn't want me to find it. As soon as I quit and stepped out of the house, the cat let out a cry and my wife let it out. And mm-hmm. but But how can Amelia... Yeah, because one of her words in an email was, the cat's alive, I can see the moon through its eyes. That was the one outdoors. And so I wrote a foreword to her book just saying, one cannot deny what she is experiencing. And the key for those who would like to do this, not just with animals, but with other people too, the quiet mind. Hmm. What we all need is the quiet mind, then we see the truth. Whether it's an ugly duckling on a pond seeing he's a swan or a tiger. These are stories brought up by goats who sees he's a tiger when another tiger takes him to a still pond. And it's mm-hmm. the same words that I heard, would hear from Amelia. Bernie, when your dog disappears, don't keep screaming and getting frantic. Quiet your mind, get into the animal's mind, and you'll know where they are and so forth. And, oh, boy, have I learned that. Mm-hmm. I, I've learned. You don't get upset anymore. You left your car open, you can't find your dog, quiet your mind. Where is it? Oh, he's in stop and shop. See, I, I was about to start screaming in the parking lot, and I went into stop and shop, and the security guard was treating him, <laughs> and, and he was having a wonderful time with the dog. Um, and, and, and it's yeah, and we have one cat who loves to go out and climb fences and get out of the yard and that I have fenced in. But I can send her a message, say, I'm worried about you, it's time to come in, it's getting dark, or it's lunchtime, and she'll appear at the door. Mm. It's amazing. Um, and other Have times had- I know she'll say to me, no, I'm not coming in now. Yeah. Mm. Have you had that sort of experience with people who have passed on? Have I what? Have you had that sort of experience with people who have passed on? What, what do you mean by that experience? Where you quiet your mind and you feel like they communicate you from the other side. Oh, yeah. I hear voices is the way I put it. Okay. Um, And they always say things that are meaningful. I mean, and this may sound crazy. Even something as simple as go to the animal shelter. I always say I wait for God to tell me when to go to the animal shelter to find a new pet. And, you know, you may think I'm neurotic and crazy, but you'd be amazed. I'd go down and animals that have been there for 15 minutes and we connect for a reason. See, like I write a book, Buddy's Candle. I'm told, go to the animal shelter. I walk in, dog been sitting there. I say, what's his name? Buddy. He's been here 15 minutes. Another, I went down, named Brady. That's my name in Irish because a child was named after me when I saved his mother's uh, from having a miscarriage. But they said we're Irish, so it's Brady. So, you know, those things are not coincidences. I walk in, and there's always something unique. Oh, I have to say I've learned to not let them know the names of the family members because (laughs) my father's name was Simon, see? And I walk in, what's that cat's name? Simon. What's that dog's name? Simon. So we've had a lot of Simons. in the house, and I don't tell them anything anymore because uh, I don't know if it's the voice telling me or they're just getting away with something with me. Yeah. But, yes, I, I, I listen to that intuitive message, and I would say to people to do that too. Uh, it could be how to drive somewhere, you know, one day to avoid an accident. Um, it, it's just a voice. And you know who you hear that most from? are the parents of children who have died. Mm -hmm. Because when they feel safe in a room full of other parents who have experienced the same thing, they will tell you amazing stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me just share two quickly. That one one boy uh, was into butterflies. I mean, his whole room was decorated, the walls with butterflies and everything. And he Mm -hmm. studied them. And he died. And the father Mm -hmm. was taking a walk in Connecticut and a butterfly followed him. And... It just stayed with him till he went home. Mm-hmm. And he looked it up in his son's books, and it was a South American butterfly. Right? Mm-hmm. 
You're driving on the parkway in the winter. Your son died. He loved pigeons, you know, had them uh, as pets. And the pigeon lands in your lane, and you hear your son's voice. Slow down, Mom. Slow down. You slow down. You come around a sharp turn on the parkway, and there's a sheet of ice and 20 cars piled up. Mm. And you avoid it because of the voice. Mm. We went to a Hawaiian island after a patient of mine died there with her mother because uh, she wanted to resolve all her differences with her mother before she died. We mm. got there, went into a store. There was a butterfly in the store. We put our hand up. My wife did because we were always rescuing everything. The butterfly mm. landed on her hand and came out of the store with her. Mm. What does it do? It flies over to my wife's shoulder and gets in the car with us instead of leaving. Mm. Goes back to the hotel, up to the hotel room, sitting on my wife's shoulder. Spent the evening with us. After dinner, I said to my wife, you can't sleep with a butterfly. I've written a story about this. and mm. It's entitled that on my website. I said, you mm. can't sleep with a butterfly. All right, I'll go out and brush it off. She mm. came back in the apartment, and I said, look at your other shoulder. Because she brushed it off, <laughs> and it came back. And then mm-hmm. I knew it was the spirit of my dead patient. Mm-hmm. So I just talked to the butterfly the way I would talk to a person. And I said, tomorrow we're doing a workshop. I want you to participate in it. I'll talk about the symbolism of the butterfly as transformation, and I'll have you hop in a bag in the morning so nobody will know I have you, and then I'll open the bag and you fly out. And that's what happened the next morning. Butterfly goes into the bag. We drive there. I talk to the group, open the bag. Out it flies. And it stayed from nine to five over our heads. Wow. And And you you can't explain that Mm -mm. except through the consciousness. Mm -hmm. And and let me add, because I used to say to uh, friends of mine who were into uh, past lives and things, that's all crazy. You know, if if the kids, like your son shows up on the parkway 10 years later and says, Mom, slow down. The kid's a bum. He could be in school now. He should be doing something, not just hanging around. And the statement was always from Brian Weiss, was a student at Yale and knew me and has written books, Many Lives, Many Masters, and so forth. And um, he said, Bernie, there's no time when you leave your body. Mm. That was always a tough one for me, see. Mm. Mm. But I realized the truth in it. So it's not that they're, you know, worthless. Uh, It's that there's no time. So they're still there for us. And what made me believe it most was a line from the show Carousel where an angel says to a guy, you want to see your daughter graduate from college? Oh, no, she's a baby. What are you talking about? There's no time up here, the angel says. See, that's why I trust the creative people. How the hell did they put a line like that in a musical show? There's no time up here from an angel. And, of course, they then go back and watch the graduation. Um, But when somebody says something like that, my sense is, okay, they're speaking the truth. Because it's coming from, again, their consciousness, their inner wisdom. Uh, You know, it's not something you learn. So, yes. And I also definitely feel, because I had a past life experience when somebody said over the phone, why are you living this life? Because I was so busy. She Mm. just wanted me to slow down. It has nothing to Mm. do with anything. I went into a trance because of what she said on the phone. Now, what Mm. I believe is, again, not that I have multiple lives, but that the consciousness of people who have preceded my life can enter into me. So I always say, when the five-year-old is playing a violin in a concert orchestra, which I saw on television, I mean, my belief is what's within him is the consciousness of a violinist. See, so at five, he can do what other people can't do (laughs) when they're 35, you know, no matter how many lessons they take. And I think the same is true of me, that things have happened to me, becoming a surgeon, being an artist as a painter. Um, All these things were part of the consciousness that was within me and Mm -hmm. that I'm just bringing it forth. 
Oh, wow. Bernie, thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, for yet again enlightening us, inspiring us to live fully. Are you at all afraid to die? No, not at all. What's that like? No. What's it like? Mm-hmm. To not be I afraid. Mean, I, I, I mean, there are many times, uh, I hope it doesn't sound sick, I could say, hey, I wish I were dead. But, um, you know, <laughs> when you have one of those days. But um, because then you're back to, in a sense, perfection again. See, this is a wonderful line from one of my favorite writers, William Soroyan. A man is, you know, like homeless and in trouble and out of money, and he's dying. And he lies down, and the story is called, um, oh, wait a minute. Um, uh, I hope the words, the title will come to me. Um, But it's like a... uh, Oh, it, it's a trip to heaven kind of, you know, title of this story. But when he lies down on the bed, he dies. And the last words in the story are, he becomes dreamless, unalive, perfect. Mm. That's what I would like people to know. You'll become dreamless and unalive, but perfect again. Mm. You'll be missing no parts of your body, no you know, difficulties. People born blind see when they leave their bodies. I mean, all these things happen. So I'd say there is nothing to fear. Um, And that's, you know, my concept of death. And you meet all your old friends again, and uh, their consciousness is there too. Again, not their bodies, but their consciousness. And I become that believer when I see you know, when I get phone calls from somebody like Monica or hear voices, and then I, I just don't resist and don't deny uh, what's occurring. I tell people, look for signs. What I look for are pennies. I know this sounds crazy, but I tell God, I want to know I'm on the right path. I'd like to find pennies. And because um, it says, in God we trust, liberty, the freedom to be who you are, and Abe Lincoln reminding you of your mortality. And even the other day at Stop and Shop, as I'm checking out, what do I see in the, you know, when people pay with cash and get change, there's a penny sitting in that little cup-like holder. See? When I went to get new eyeglasses, I found three pennies getting out of my car and walking into the store. And those sometimes are difficult moments in my life. And the penny just lights me up. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And when my mother died, if you want to really think I'm nuts, I found <laughs> close to three dozen pennies in the few days after she died. And the great-grandchildren and grandchildren started calling them pennies from heaven. I hadn't even said anything about them. But they said, oh, they're pennies from heaven, from Grandma. And what was fascinating to me was there was no explanation for finding them. You go to your mailbox, come back up your driveway to the house and find the penny on the way back that wasn't there on the way down. Yeah. All I can say is I accept these things. Yeah. I don't try to explain them. I don't know how they happen, but mm-hmm. I know it has happened. Mm-hmm. I just keep an open mind. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Bernie. I never, ever like to end our conversations, but I thank you for your time. Any way you want to say goodbye at this point? Well, I'd say when you live in your heart, magic happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember that we are all going to die someday. So enjoy yeah. your life. Don't mm-hmm. do things to not die. Because the other thing I realized was the bitterest people in heaven with the vegetarian meditating joggers. <laughs> so yeah, one of the things I love, when one of our sons, I said, if you have 15 minutes to live, let people answer this one. You have 15 minutes to live, what would you do? And think about it. Say, he said, I'd buy a quart of chocolate ice cream. And I said, you're doing fine. Somebody else in the room said, hey, just because I said I'd play golf, you know, what are you being critical of me? What if the golf is my chocolate ice cream? And that's the thing I'd say to everybody. If 
Find mm-hmm. your chocolate ice cream and go live it. And for me, I have to say this, that most people, oh, I'd call everybody I love. Who the hell wants to spend the last 15 minutes of your life on the telephone? Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you so want to do? Go your find your chocolate ice cream. What's and, your chocolate ice cream? Hmm? What's your chocolate ice cream? Well, as I say, anything that makes me lose track of time, working with people, laughing. I mean, humor mm-hmm. is a big part of my life, childlike. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm carrying on all the time. And I know there's a kid in me that I always tell people I'm a multiple personality. So I don't have control (laughs) over all the things I say. I'm I'm serious. I mean, words pop out of me. That Like the other day in a restaurant, somebody said, hey, I hope we see you again soon. And I said, I hope not. And everybody in the restaurant bursts out laughing, you know. Where does an answer like that come from, you know. But the guy knows I'm a character, so I don't worry about it. Hmm. Um, And uh, I'll tell you one more story, then I'll stop. You want to have fun. Uh, Because it's when I go, we have a a fellow I know who runs a wonderful pizza restaurant. But when I go in, I always say, is my Chinese food ready? Now, you know, there are different waitresses and Hmm. people. And so they think I'm in the wrong restaurant, and they start telling me. (laughs) And... One day, what do you think they had, though, when I walked in and said, hey, is my Chinese food ready? They had containers of Chinese food. And see, then the whole restaurant is laughing. Those are my best moments, you know, to go in there. And as I said, that's one of the places where the new people are told, don't ask him how are you (laughs) when he comes to pick up the pizza. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Bernie. We will talk to you down the road. Thanks, everybody. Have a good giggle, good laugh on all of us. Bless you, too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.